Welcome to X-Rated Movies. This is a movie podcast by two guys who used to date, and now they no longer date. Now they talk about movies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ryan Whedon. I am one of your co-hosts, Matthew Fisher. So before we get too far into this, I do want to apologize. I've been bad at responding to people, especially on our Facebook page. I just want to say that it, it's nothing against y'all, the, the, the listeners, it's just October was a very busy month. Like professionally, mm. it was busy. There was an election. I have to move soon, so I've been planning and coordinating that. I've had very little brain space, and unfortunately, the people who have to suffer are the extras. Oof. So, so people have been reaching out to you on people Facebook. have been reaching out, and I haven't been the best at responding. And I just want to apologize at the top of the show because yeah, I've just had very little extra brain space. If you don't directly Help me with my job. Help me find a place to live. Pay for that place to live. Mm, it kind of gets pushed to the wayside a little bit. I see, I see, I see. So, is there anything you want to address that was that was uh, left to the wayside on Facebook here on the podcast? I love you all. Please continue to reach out to me. If I don't respond right away, it's not because I'm uncaring. It's just because I have time sensitive sometimes legally mandated deadlines to meet that right. I need to prioritize. He's up against the wall, folks. Yeah, so hopefully now that we're in November, my uh, uh, slack-off period at work, I can be more timely and more attentive to people. But all of October was really rough, uh, and I really w- just had to, to triage it, it in, a, in a very hardcore sense. So. Yeah. Apologies accepted. Yes, thank you. On behalf of the extras, Ryan. On behalf of the extras. On that topic, though, I kind of want to let my hair down a little bit. (gasps) Okay. I was listening to an interview with uh, Frank Langella today. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And on Mark Mm -hmm. Maron's podcast. and Love that he's still around, by the way. He was just in that uh, Aaron Sorkin Netflix movie, Trial of Chicago 7. That's right, as the judge. Yeah. I did watch that, by the way. I got around to it. Oh, it was good. Yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen. Love that guy. Oh, where's his Oscar? He's earned one by now. You think the the Borat outings are going to garner him an Oscar? Well, they should. Just don't seem in the Academy's All right, here's vocabulary. An, here's a very unpopular opinion. Um, deserved for Sweeney Todd. There, I said it. Best Supporting Actor? Yeah. I mean, he's very good. That was like the one thing that we agreed upon in that episode, was that Sacha Baron Cohen is amazing in, in that role. And elevates the movie, shows up for a little bit. Classic supporting character. Oh, not even nominated, probably. I don't know. Anyway, listening to Frank Langella, he was talking about his, his earliest, earliest roles. Like, his first movie was uh, Mel Brooks' The Twelve Chairs, but he said that he had, like, bit parts in, like, television shows and stuff before that, and one was a show that I'd never heard of, don't remember the name of, but it was Peter Falk and Elaine Stritch, and uh, Mark Maron was like, well, how is that? And he, uh, he, he goes... Peter Falk would always, like, on, on lunch break, go off to his dressing room with some young girl and come back looking so refreshed. And I'm like, Peter Falk? Oh. Columbo? Yeah. Apparently, he's that, that little body's got some BDE to it. What does that stand for? Big Dick Energy. Oh, right. Ow, I can't laugh right now. <laughs> Ryan's in, in feeble uh, right now. He's infirm. I, listen, people, I, heard, I injured a rib, so 
laughing is how <laughs> yeah it Bruce really hurts sucking a dick so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> see when you're in pain that just makes me laugh all the more this is gonna be an interesting thread throughout the episode here i was gonna try and do a peter falk impression of a uh, just one more question that's t- that's too gravelly so I'm wondering, <laughs> my dick, <laughs> it's not going to suck itself over here. <laughs> oh, gross. I'm just wondering Pete- if you could help me out with that. Peter Falk would be so much more charismatic than that. Okay, 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 okay. So, you say you like sucking things. <laughs> I'm just wondering, is there anything in this room that, uh, you got interest in sucking? (laughs) You think he asked them about sucking before they even got to the dressing room? I don't know. I've actually never seen an episode of Columbo. What? Yeah, I don't know. It's like the slightly more masculine version of Murder, She Wrote. I know the, the basic premise, and I know that, like, his catchphrase is, just one more thing. Oh, yeah. And it's always so good, though, too. Yeah. So good. I got I got the gist of the show. I got the idea of it. I just, uh, Peter Falk, with his, with his one good eye, I just, it shocked me to think that he was always bringing some young lady back to his dressing room. So you wouldn't hit it, is what you're saying. Peter Falk? No. 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 Oh, no. No. No, no. Well, no, no, no. This, this isn't even like kombucha girl <laughs> style. No, it's this, just straight up no. No, I would, I would not, I would not mm-hmm. go back to Peter Falk's dressing room. Hmm. But I was just wondering, is there any hot celebrity goss, especially celebrity goss of you know mid to late seventies <laughs> celebrities that uh, kind of lives in your head rent free? Okay, well, I know this isn't really movie talk, but, like, I'm always curious if David Bowie and Mick Jagger actually fucked. Like, I play it in my head. Are you not taking the word of Bowie's ex-wife? Angela? Yeah. Well, what's her official stance? Well, she said that she caught them in bed. Like, she like, came home what, with one a day. a penis in a butt? Or what? a penis in a mouth? Like, what's her... What's her... It, it, it was, like... They were both in the bedroom, and she turned on the lights, and they were, you know, assuming more professional positions. But so I, I don't think she she caught any penetration, any any, any penetration. Well, see, if that's, that's what you're asking. See, that's the details I'm like really starving for. You want to know who, if Mick Jagger's the bossy bottom? That that he- who's the T? Who's the B? <laughs> uh, what position are they in? I mean, let's be real here. David Bowie's whatever you need him to be. Oh, I know. What do you think Mick Jagger wants him to be? A TT. Total top. Really? Yeah. Oh. With, I just, his, with his DSL? I mean, he does like, He does have DSL. Well, I mean, it's not just an internet provider anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ow. Ow. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, you'd think that would stifle my laughter, but it just amplifies it. I know, and then that, I, like, it's a cascading effect. So you're insinuating that uh, Mick Jagger with his DSLs, yeah, S some D, yeah, on DB, yep, and on the DL, and on the DL, which led to maybe some BF 
or some uh, I'm AP. Like maybe not to completion, but yeah, there was probably some BF in there. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, Angela probably walked in and ruined the whole thing. So you know, wow. he couldn't walk around with a little Bowie in him. But so uh, DB BF MJ. D-B-T-T'd M-J. Wow. Yeah. All right. You heard it here first. (laughs) I don't know. I love thinking about that moment because it's just like, it's such a scandal and it's like. I mean, you've seen the music video of the two of them, the dancing in the street video. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yes. I mean, if that doesn't scream homosexual, I don't know what does. That's gayer than an episode of Drag Race. Yeah. That's. One of the worst things I've ever seen. Hey, it's say. it's real bad. Just, it's not a high point in the music video genre. If you haven't seen Mick Jagger and David Bowie doing Dancing in the Streets, pause this podcast right now, watch it, and uh, come back. You'll be a changed person. I'll tell you that. <laughs> a changed person. I also love thinking about Natalie Wood's death. I don't know if this is like in celebrity gossip land. I, there but was, like I'm so the, So th- this is the era of celebrity gossip <laughs> that I actually like know a modicum of, about. I know I've listened to a fucking pod series podcast about this. I feel like it's you brought this gossipy. up on a uh uh opening banter once on oh, a podcast before. I did. It was uh the sorcerer episode, I wanna oh, say. Oh god, episode seventeen. It's just Okay, so many questions. We got Christopher Walken. We got Natalie Wood on a boat with her... Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner. Did you say Robert Wagner? <laughs> I was going to say her husband. But it came out her Robert Wagner. <laughs> Robert Wa- Whatever. So there's there's rumors that there's some gay things happening with Robert Wagner yeah. and uh, Christopher Walken. And she walked in on him and they threw off the boat. I'm just going to say that's, like, the story. All right. If we're thinking of fantasy gay hookups, MJDB, <laughs> of course, it's high on the list. I also like to think of uh, uh, Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart on the set of Philadelphia Story. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> because I guess it came out that, that Jimmy Stewart's penis is, like, confusingly large and Cary Grant became obsessed, like had to get like firsthand like glimpse of it. Can you do a Cary Grant? I'm gonna try one here. I'm attempting it. It's that mid Atlantic accent, Jimmy. I, I'd love to see what's in your pants. <laughs> yeah, those those tented uh, drapey those trousers don't do justice to what they're hiding. I can see why you're wearing such curtainy pants. <laughs> They're hiding a huge salami in there. <laughs> I go back and forth on the Cary Grant being gay thing because it's like Diane Cannon was a much younger lady when they got married and they didn't go out much. And when asked about it, Diane Cannon was like, yeah, because we're too busy fucking. Like, plain and simple. It's conflicting. But when we're talking about... uh gay uh gossip hot Hollywood. Goss, yeah. yeah i'm not interested in 
Robert Wagner and <laughs> oh, Christopher Walken. Like, yeah, on on the on the the hot gay celebrity goss like spectrum, that's on the lower side. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I know that Robert Wagner was like sex idol. What the what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, um, uh, uh, love, uh, icon, icon or something. Like, he was attractive in his day, and people were attracted to him. Yeah. But, like, and not to badmouth Christopher Walken, but it's just, like, that's not the hot BFing that I want to think about. You want me to suck your your dick. dick. And I put it in my butt. (laughs) This hunk of junk. Bantering for almost 20 minutes. Oh, shit. We have... I guess the rest of our celebrity gossip will have to wait for a different episode. So we will uh, have to go on to our feature of today. Which is... Unfaithfully Yours. 1948, Preston Sturgis. Our first rom-com since The Apartment. Like, screwball rom-com. I was gonna say we've we've done like uh, defending your life, yeah, or uh, which is a comedy with romance, yeah. But if we're talking screwball rom coms, yeah, the apartment episode twelve. And if rewatching this movie has taught me anything, we like our rom coms dark. Yeah, if it doesn't have suicide, I'm not watching it. Because a couple months ago, I kind of went through a Preston Sturgis binge watched. Okay. A fair amount of his movies. Oddly enough, I did not watch Christmas in July, which that that's his movie. Weird. <laughs> so may, maybe I'll get to it this now that we're in the Christmas season. I'll watch Christmas in July. But, Perfect. I think uh, this is my first Preston Sturgis, and uh, I'm gonna say very much a director's movie. Like I think there are so many scenes where I was like, "Oh, there is someone at the helm here." So Preston Sturgis, I don't want to say he's the first auteur, but like when we think of writer directors, he is the first of that ilk. Like movies typically weren't written and directed by the same person in the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. This is late 40s too. This is this is 1948, uh, which we also haven't done just a movie this old since Rope, which came out in 1948 as well. The closest thing that we've done to this movie since then is Streetcar Named Desire, which was 1951, which is the episode we did right after Rope. Hey, how about that? We go to movies from our lifetime, and so this is, like, we we don't go that far back, and so, yeah, we haven't done a screwball company since The Apartment, and we haven't done a movie since the 40s since Rope, which, yeah, that was episode, like... 96 or something i will say if you're an extra or a patreon subscriber we've got a screwball comedy from the 40s in that zone so for, for if christmas you want, in december if you want to shill out a few bucks 
Uh, you can listen to us do a little more in that zone. We're, we're doing a, a, a Jimmy Stewart. This uh, mm, is Jimmy Stewart. Shop around the corner. He's showing off his calves. <laughs> he is showing off his calves. Um, but you have to pay to hear about that. Yeah, so we're that, not even that, talking about that. That's a Patreon episode. But you're right. Yeah, we we don't do a lot of movies in this in this time zone. We don't do a lot of movies of this ilk. And, uh, and even the apartment was considerably later than this. The apartment was like 1960. 60, yeah. yeah. Okay. So speaking of 1940s screwball comedies like The Shop Around the Corner, people uh, back then, I think I think they think suicide was a funny thing. <laughs> Like they like to play fast and loose with that idea. Like I mean, shop around the corner. I think it was dealt with a little more gravity than in Unfaithful Yours. Definitely, but like in what comedy, modern day comedy, do they just like casually throw suicide around? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of things that are very serious that that in in the World War Two era or before were not treated as seriously like alcoholism comes to mind oh yeah alcoholism was seen as sort of a funny vice up until after world war ii and so yeah like we just didn't quite see it in the same lens yeah so unfaithfully yours yeah preston surges of the golden age of hollywood directors preston surges is is He's right up there with Billy Wilder for me Mm. because one writer director kind of paved the way for like the, the auteur ism of like the sixties and seventies. Yeah. yeah. But I also kind of think that he has a bigger influence on modern filmmakers than say a Billy Wilder or a Howard Hawks. I could see that. Yeah. Um, Based on, this is the only movie of his I've seen. But I was surprised at the directorial flourishes in it. Well, one, there's obvious things. Like, Quentin Tarantino chose this as number eight out of his top 11 movies ever. Like He, 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 he would. He had a list of... This, this list came out in, like, 2008. But, like, he came up with a list of 11 greatest movies ever. And this was number eight. Yeah, this seems very Tarantino. Also, I see a lot of Coen brothers in this movie. The sort of jumbling of genres, the way that, like, this isn't straight comedy and it isn't straight drama. It's a real mishmash of those two things. And that's something that the Coens do a lot. And if you see Sullivan's Travels, which I thoroughly think that you should it's about a movie director trying to make a movie called oh brother where art thou mm. and the quick-witted dialogue is very cohen-y as well so i just i see preston surgis more in filmmakers in the generation that i latch on to more than other directors from this time period like the golden age of hollywood if you will okay and so I don't know. Yeah, there's something about Preston Surgis. Like, he's... I don't want to say he's more serious or more adult, because, like, obviously Billy Wilder, like, gets this way, too. But there's something different about it. Maybe I can put better terms on it as we talk about the movie, but... I think we should just dig into it. So, like, the basic premise of the movie is that, like, there's a composer 
uh, played by Rex Harrison, who thinks his wife is cheating on him. And then we get three vignettes about him fantasizing, fantasizing his, his how confrontation. He's deal with it. Yeah. Like how he's going to confront his wife about and it. And each one is prefaced by a crazy zoom in onto his eye while he's conducting an orchestra. And it's like, when that first one happened, I was like, okay, now we're watching a movie. Super, like, like capital D director move. I, I mean, the movie was interesting written-wise. Like, there's lots of good dialogue ahead of that. There was a funny, like, fire scene. We'll get back to sure, it probably. Sure. But, like, once that section of the movie starts happening where we're getting, like, the three vignettes of him imagining how he's going to deal with confronting his wife about her cheating. I was like, wow, suddenly this movie is completely different. Like the structure of this movie is nuts. Like it's not conventional at all. And especially for a movie from 1948, is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like when I think of movies from this time period, this isn't what I would think of. Well, because I looked up other quote unquote comedies from like around this time. And it's like, they were all much more straightforward, like The Bishop's Wife, Miracle on 34th Street, you know, Mr. Blanding Builds His Dream Home, stuff like that. Yeah. Like, like it wasn't like there was a streak of dark comedies at this time. Like, this one kind of stands out yeah. in, in that respect. When was Divorced Italian Style? When did that come out? I'd have to look it up. I don't know. How, I don't okay, know well, right it reminded off. me a lot of that movie. I mean, fair, fair. Divorced Italian style, he's trying to set up a scenario where his wife would cheat on him so he can kill her. Oh, okay. Where this one, it's he gets wind from his brother-in-law. It, like, his brother-in-law, August, is like, you know, I, you asked me to watch over your wife while you were gone. He's like, well, yeah, I meant, like, make sure she didn't get lonely to take her out. And now that I'm thinking about it, it's sort of like in Pulp Fiction when John Travolta's asked to take care of the wife, and he kind of misunderstands it a little bit there. Yeah. August, Rex Harrison's brother-in-law, misunderstands that and hires a detective to watch over the wife to make sure that she doesn't get into any funny business while Rex Harrison is away in England. And while he's in England, the detective notes that there's one night where she leaves her room, which I thought it was a hotel, but must be an apartment because they uh, live there. I think in that time, the lines were blurred between hotel and apartment. Okay. Because, yeah, it's like they have a lovely like room there. Oh, my God. Everyone's rich in this movie. <laughs> but it also kind of seems like the assistant, Tony, Tony. also hey, lives Tony, in the same building. By the way, my name's Ryan. Super cute. And... um. If you're ever not interested in girls, I'm available. When when Tony first showed up, because I didn't remember all the specifics of this, I was like, I remember that Rex Harrison got the idea that his wife was cheating on him. Mm-hmm. But when Tony showed up, I was like, oh, he's cute. But I was like, oh, wouldn't it be wild if that was the person that Rex Harrison thought that his wife was cheating on him? I was like, that would make sense, but that can't be how it goes. I mean, that's exactly how it yep, goes. That's how it goes. Yeah, so, like, the detective's report was that his wife went wearing a negligee from their room down to 3406. And then stayed there for 38 minutes. Yep. And then left. And then left. 
And so when Rex Harrison does his own sleuthing, his own his own dick work, he goes to 3406 and sees that it's his secretary, Tony's room. And he's a strapping young lad right around her age. and uh, Blonde, handsome. Yep. All adds up. So, yeah, really, like, the first half of the movie is largely, you know, your run-of-the-mill screwball comedy from this era. Right. And, this, and you know that there's some sort of mistaken identity going on. Well, I mean, screwball comedies are sort of defined by if the two main focuses just sit down and tell each other the truth, everything would be resolved. And this is no different than that. No, like, And we get there, honestly, at the end, like, finally, the truth is all laid out. But, like... We got to deal with everybody's issues until then. <laughs> so, like, the rehearsal scene, I actually really like the rehearsal scene. Like, it adds up to nothing. Like, I don't think it actually adds to the movie. But the idea that, Where like, he's like... Dr. Schultz, yes, sir, Alfred. Yours is my favorite instrument in the entire orchestra. I've been looking at you, but I can't hear you. I was afraid of being a little loud, Alfred. You know, vulgar. As a small boy, I was learned always never to be vulgar. Be vulgar by all means, but let me hear that brazen laugh. It was just kind of a fun scene because, like, Rex Harrison's smoking, and you think of, like, a symphony rehearsing that it, you know, it, it should be very stern. It should be very austere. And, like, he's talking over it. Like, people are playing their music, and he's like, Symbols, you're my favorite instrument. He's like, well, I don't want to play too loud. It's supposed to be vulgar. He's like, bring out the vulgarity. Those uh, are the biggest crash symbols I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. I used to play percussion in college and high school, and I've never seen crash symbols that big. They were enormous. It just, I don't know, for some reason, it kind of struck me as realistic. Like, I think if you were rehearsing, like, a full symphony orchestra, mm-hmm. like, you wouldn't play the whole thing and then stop and then, like, tell people like give corrections or notes like you'd play the whole thing and be like no no no, you louder keep going keep going like sh- like i don't know it it struck me as more realistic than what we usually see i mean in some these th- movies this is a passing thought i don't know if this is a fertile ground we should cover but i'm gonna say it anyway but like it really it struck me this time while watching this was like oh a conductor is a lot like being a director of a movie mm-hmm. where it's like um you have sort of like a blueprint but you're really relying on lots of other people to be doing their job well. It's a collaboration. And yeah. you're telling them, like, you do this here, do you do this here, you do this here. But, like, you're, I mean, you're sort of in control, but you're you're not really. Like, you're just hoping that everyone's doing their job well. And, like, a conductor's the same way, where it's like, it's like you've assembled this group of people that you know can do their job well, and you just hope that you're telling them you're nudging them in the right directions. So, like, I thought it was interesting that, like, he chose to make the main character a conductor because it's, like, it brings a lot of focus onto Preston Sturgis himself. And I, I think that's very accurate because this is a script that Preston Sturgis had for a long time and kind of had to, like, make several hits before he had the clout to make this one. Mm-hmm. Um, like he had to get a few like box office hits under his belt 
before the studio would let him do Unfaithfully Yours. And, like, a lot of the dialogue in it is, like, pulled from, like, actual love letters. Like, the last line, like, A thousand poets dreamed a thousand years. Then you were born, my love. That's something that he wrote to his future wife, like, in their courting period. Ooh la la. Uh-huh. And so, uh, I think this one is, like, particularly uh, uh, personal to him in some respects. It just struck me that, like, it's it's interesting that they would choose a conductor to be the main character because... It could have been a thousand different professions. Yeah, and they spend so much time on the music. Like, there's, there's a, like, the the aforementioned scene you're talking about with, like, the cymbal player. There's a lot of that part of him just conducting and then playing the music. And, like, the music plays an important part in this movie because, like, the aforementioned, uh, like, different scenarios that play, there's different music playing underneath it. And the music has undertones of what is going on yeah, on screen. I mean, the, the so the first one, the, the biggest one of them, is where he, he he's, he's conducting for an audience, like a Rossini overture. Uh, uh, Barbara of Seville. No, it's not Barbara Seville. It's not? No, it's, uh, I looked it up. It's, uh, uh, Semiramis or something. I'm sure it sounds better in Latin or whatever language it was initially supposed to be. But it's. Well, I'll a, be sure to play the right one right now. <laughs> it's about the Queen of Babylon killing her husband so that she's the only ruler. Oh, no. That's exactly what he thinks is happening. Yeah. And then, like, the middle one is Wagner. That's the melodramatic one. And then, of course... But he's like... And that one, he's like, I will I will The overly romantic, yeah. And... I will be the good and true yeah. person in this. Here's your money. Leave me. I I'm just want you to be happy. Yeah. And then, like, the really, like, dramatic one, of course, the, the Tchaikovsky, the gay one. Gay. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, of course, this is the OTT one. So, the, yeah, the, the first one is Rosini, and that's the longest of the vignettes. And <laughs> it is surprisingly dark. I, so this movie is a box office bomb, I guess. And most people blame it on the darkness of the storylines. It was surprisingly dark, yeah. So the first vignette is him creating this elaborate scenario where he murders his wife with a razor blade and then frames Tony, the young man. Tony! Who he believes his wife is cheating on him with. Which I love because there's that crazy home recording system Mm -hmm. from the 40s, which I'm like, what is this contraption? It's like a huge box. And like you're like okay he's a he's a conductor slash composer it's not unreasonable for him to have a home recording device yeah like and and we're talking like it's etching into blank Fresh vinyl, vinyl. Yeah, yeah like this isn't like tape recording this is it's a whole thing yeah and like the scenario that plays out in his head is so elaborate and one of the things that I like about this is like we all play out scenarios in our head but we don't necessarily see them much in movies 
And I love the way that in each of these three vignettes, like the wife acts differently. Mm, like oh, yeah. she acts accordingly. Like, so the first one, she sort of acts underhanded a little bit. And he's like, well, you know, I don't think I'll be able to take you out dancing. She's like, Oh no. It's like, yeah, I, I, we'll get Tony to take you out dancing. Like, Oh, okay. If you insist, mm-hmm. like, and then, like, you know, uh, uh, a couple minutes later, shows her on the phone with Tony. He's like, No, I tell you, it was his own idea. <laughs> but then, like, flash forward to the next vignette, like, the shorter one with Wagner, the the really just wallowing in your own self-pity one. Uh, and he's writing her a, a large check so that she can be, you know, free he's and Self-righteous. Happy. And, like, in that one, she sort of, she, instead of being underhanded as she was in the first one, this one she's also sort of wrought with guilt and things like that. Uh, so, like, she's playing a different character altogether. And then the third one, the Chagoski one, where they play Russian roulette, she's totally unawares of what's happening and totally caught off guard by his ingenuity that he was able to figure out their little affair right so yeah it's like each vignette that the people act the way that you kind of think people act in your own scenarios like when you think about how something's going to play out you know what it reminded me of it's nine to five. Oh, okay yeah sure sure where we get three different scenarios and so in this situation i guess it's um the wife girlfriend is the dabney coleman character where in each one of these scenarios uh they get to play like a different version uh like the femme fatale the Mm -hmm. uh repentant lover yeah like all those like you know stereotypes it's it, it it's a lot of fun and like the movie doesn't set you up to let you know that that's what's going on but as soon as like you get that crazy like zoom into the eye, you're like, we're in for something. Yeah. And then like when he repeats it two more times, you're like, oh, I get it. This is all what's going on in his head. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's not an obvious thing that the movie makes for you. Like in like a lesser movie, there would be like sort of like wavy lines and like. Suddenly we're in dreamland. Yeah. Yeah. And like, this is just like, it presents dream world in a way that like, honestly, I haven't seen since. It it goes into his eye. Like we're now seeing his perspective. Right. And it's like, it's, it's so original, but like, why hasn't anyone repeated that? Like, it seems to me like that's such an obvious way to say, oh, we're going into this person's mind. And it's like, rip that off. <laughs> this is just so artistic and interesting. And no one's done it since that I know of. And it just seems like right for, take that again. Like, yeah. Because it, it's a great idea. And because it, it really, like, when you're watching the movie, you're like, this is obviously something inside his head. Yeah. But it doesn't say, oh, he's imagining it. It's just a nice presumably easy if they did in 48 you could probably do it now we we have more tools at our disposal not less necessarily yeah but i don't know i don't know why 
people haven't ripped it off. Maybe because this is a, a little-loved movie from 1948 that even Preston Sturgis fans haven't necessarily seen. Hmm. But uh, each of the three vignettes have a distinct feeling that sort of matches the, the score that he's composing. And, the and they music play the music underneath, underneath it. Underneath it. So that plays out Mwah, nicely. Chef's kiss. I love that. And a lot of comedies from this era I don't laugh out loud at. But oh, I my God. Do. I laughed out loud, too. <laughs> and... Like a lot of the dialogue is, is is funny. Even some of the the just the the sharp dialogue from the beginning when oh oh, oh. <laughs> go ahead. I have a line that I want to read. Well, I, I want to say when August is like. There is one very reassuring thing about airplanes. They always come down. Come on, stupid. I was like, okay, that's the kind of movie we're getting. I, I can't remember who comes into his his office, but uh, there's there's the line where he says, "Now, my dear August, what happy updraft wafts you hither?" No one talks this way. This is brilliant writing. <laughs> yeah. Preston Sturgis was the playwright before he became a, a film director. He didn't direct his first movie until he was, like, 40 years old. Oh. And, like, he directed, like, roughly a movie a year until he died at, like, the age of, like, 56 or something. But, yeah. So, oh, that's a young age. Yeah, he wasn't terribly old. So, yeah, I mean, sharp dialogue left and right in this. But, uh, like, kind of what separates it, A... I fucking love Rex Harrison in this movie. Yeah, we haven't talked enough about Rex Harrison. I mean, Rex Harrison was like the Kelsey Grammer of his day. Like, he like thinks he's so posh and bougie, and then like when it comes down to it, he's just as clumsy and as much of a fuck up as the rest of us. Oh my god. Okay, so laugh out loud moments. Uh, like the, there are moments in the. I'm not dying, but I was cracking up. The first vignette, the way that it plays out, and, like, Tony goes to court, and, like, Rex Harrison's, like, in the courtroom when he gets his sentencing, and he starts laughing, and he's like, you will be put in this holding cell while you await the death penalty, and Rex Harrison's just laughing and laughing. (laughs) Like, I started laughing at that, too, but I'm like, we just saw someone get murdered, and then him frame someone else, and now he's just laughing his way like, as the person's being sentenced to death. No, I didn't do it! I didn't do it! No! I didn't do it! <laughs> the physical comedy, which is something that I'm not usually on board for you're embarrassed by it usually but in this one it works and i i want to say it's because they he he tempered it with some uh uh technical things like there's the part where so he has these those three scenarios in his head of like okay how can i do this and he ends up deciding on the first one where he's like i'm going to murder my wife with the help of this um recording machine and like just him getting the recording machine out oh, of the closet. Oh my god. Is <laughs> well, I love hilarious. It's like Mr. Bean meets like I don't know, like he, he's he, he's it's so, like Inspector Clouseau in like the Pink Panther movies or something. Oh, he's he, he's he's got a there's like one part where he has a phone 
and he's like, oh my god, struggling with trying to like well, hang like up the, the record- line. The recording device is like in some like shelves or closets, like yeah, on it's up in a closet. Uh-huh. And yeah, it, it, but I mean, the movie takes this broad turn, but. <laughs> So I, 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 I've talked about this in previous episodes where it's like drama is someone like takes a gun and shoots themselves, but like <laughs> comedy is like they take a gun and they realize it doesn't have any bullets, so they look for bullets and the bullets don't fit, so they have to go to the gun store and get bullets. Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. 100%. And, like this is a, like an exemplar of that concept. Because like even in when he's running the vignette in his head when he's playing Russian roulette and fucking kills himself in his own <laughs> vignette of Russian roulette, yeah. yeah. I mean the the biggest one is like in his scenario where he slits like cuts his wife up, like he even says like almost cuts her head off. Oh yeah, with like a, a straight razor. The difference between how the scenario plays out in his head versus how it plays out in real life is exactly that distinction that like Elaine May makes between like drama and comedy cuz it's like he goes in his head it all runs smoothly and then when he actually has to do it he's hindered by his own ineptitude it's the funniest shit like he can't like stand on a chair <laughs> without yeah. fucking like stepping through the wicker like tri- weaving <laughs> he tries to like pull out the box and there's all these loose light bulbs and like he <laughs> and steps it's the on wrong the light box bulb. anyway it's the wrong box anyway and he has to rip the box open <laughs> to get into it cuz he doesn't have the key but even leading up to like he can't find the right gloves to hide his fingerprints right. like they're too small like they don't fit so like he, and then he has to get these leather gloves, and they're not tactile enough. Like, it's just... just Well, just even before that, when he's, like, tangling with the phone, and the operator keeps being like, yeah. hello. Number, please. Hello, who is this? Some jerk on the line. Hello, are you trying to get a number? I don't want a number. What makes you think I want a number? It's broad comedy, but it's good. Like, the way that, like, his foot gets tangled on the cord, I'm like... This looks so believable. This is like whenever oh. I'm trying to like put a box on a shelf and things start like falling down. Like this is that exact feeling. I'm just I'm I mean, I'm going to come out strong and say I don't really like slapstick in general. I was laughing hard oh at my this God. stuff. Like this is this is slapstick elevated to the point that I think it's funny. Like <laughs> I think what makes me laugh the hardest is when he has the recording device, IRL, he's trying to make it work. And, of course, modern technology never works quite the way that you want it to. And he's, like, bumbling with that. And it's, like, it's pulling the vinyl up and dropping it. And it's making weird sounds. He's got feedback problems. But he records him saying, like, help, help, spare me, call the police. And then when he changes the speed on it, it slows it down and sort of speeds it up the way that it worked in his head. Uh-huh. And, like, the the sound of him, like, spare me. <laughs> like, and, like, his wife, like, walking in that. I was dying at, like, that, the sound of, like, call the police. Ah! 
There's lots of good like sound design stuff in this. Like, there's a part where she's like, uh, she buys him, she she orders him a sandwich, yeah, the breast oh, of turkey, and, and when he, he like, touches it, it's it. like, take dry white bread. They're just somebody playing around with the uh, sound design. Yeah, and like that's a lot of this movie is is somebody who realizes like, oh movies are sound and vision so like well because we like play the, around with that the the shot of him in real life recording like the help help please stop spare me stuff it's just one shot with like inserts of him of the manual like the so yes. simple it you know works itself it's like if you have any questions just look at the diagram on the back and of course the diagram on the back is madness <laughs> the simply caught us home recorder that <laughs> yeah. is not simple at all I'm like, you're recording on vinyl. How simple could it be? But it's really just one shot of him sitting there with just a couple inserts of what he's reading out of the manual. And then it has, yeah, just that slow down sound. And I just, like, the, like from what he thought it was going to be to what it actually was just cracked me the hell up. Like, I was laughing so hard when he slowed it down. I love, and then, I mean, like, his wife and Tony walk in, and she's like, Honey, are you okay? Well, I love that, like, his whole plan was going to be like, Oh, yeah, like, this is going to sound like a woman screaming. And in his brain, it's like, Oh, yeah. No, it would sound like a chipmunk. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just think of, like, the scene with, like, the when the phone, when the operator is calling him, and he's, like, dealing with the phone. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's acting against nothing. Yeah. Like, he has to just be like, no, I'm not trying to call anybody. Stop, stop, stop answering. And it's like, that's all like post. So, and the operator's all post. So it's like, I don't know. I've, I've never seen someone with such a keen idea of what movies could be and like what sound design could be in that realm. Yeah, because even movies that I do love from this time, you know, I mentioned like Billy Wilder earlier, Howard Hawks or, or William Wyler. Like, I don't think any of them have these long stretches of dialogueless movies. And, like, that's kind of why I mentioned at the top of the episode that, like, Preston Surgis was, like, the first auteur because, like, he was one of the first people to have credits that's written and directed by because, like, he wrote the movie. He knows how the scene's going to be, but, like, on paper, like, on the page, like, what are you going to write? Like, you know. He struggles and he struggles. With the phone. Yeah. But it's like he had it all in his head. Like only he could make this movie. Yeah, and and those are the scenes where I'm I'm laughing out loud. Yeah, like I was I watched this movie by myself and I was cracking up. Yeah, I was like I was cracking up too. Like both when it's Rex Harrison like in the courtroom, like hearing the decision come down, and then again when he's with that recording device. Oh, the the chair stuff. I was like. <laughs> get it together and it's believable and like i mentioned kelsey Grammer earlier because like that's also like the whole character of fraser is this like bougie posh intellectual but really a buffoon yeah and like that's kind of what this is too like for the most part like rex harrison's character is put together but like when he actually has to like muster the strength to like pull together the scenario in his head his ineptness stops him from doing it. Yeah. 
And, like, I just, I find it hilarious. Like, the way that he tries, like, even once he's, like, caught, like, when his wife comes in, he's still, in a way, trying to make his scenarios work out. Yeah. And, like, he, he even, he's like, he's like, okay, well, the murder thing didn't work out. We'll do the charitable one instead. And she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And and he kind of, like, draws it out. He's like, well, don't you want to go dancing tonight? I, I can't take you dancing. Well, who are you taking dancing instead of me? Well, no, I'm not dancing. You want to go dancing. He's like, I don't want to go dancing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, to me, it's like, this is how you play. You think about these scenarios in your head. Yeah. And then when real life happens and they're not at all the way that you had the scenarios in your head, like, suddenly you don't know how to react. Right. And I think this movie does such a good job of that because, like, all his plans hinged on her wanting to go out dancing. And then when she doesn't, he has to, like, talk her into it, but make it seem like she wanted to to begin with. Mm -hmm. And she has no interest in it. She's like, well, like, I'd only want to go dancing with you. She's like, well, and he's like, well, what about Tony? He's like, Tony? Tony? I would never want to dance with Tony. He's your secretary. And she's like, have you ever seen Tony dance? I saw him once with Bob and he gets up on his toes like a rooster and he pushes you over sideways and then he shoves your head back till you think it's going to drop off. Why, compared to him, you look like Arthur Murray. Maybe it's just me. The way that, like, when I envision an encounter or or a confrontation with someone and I illustrate it out in my head and how it never plays out that way in real life, I think that Preston Sturgis does it perfectly in this. Like, he, he has three different scenarios where they act three different ways, but in each of those three different ways, they're reacting in tune with the harmony of of his own perception sure and then the reality of how she's reacting is not at all in harmony with what he wants yeah it's fun to see his idea of what's gonna happen just completely unravel in like every way possible like the chair breaks like he's pulls out the wrong box like the phone gets tangled like he can't even turn on the fucking light right yeah it's like He's not nearly as suave as he thinks he is. Yeah, and, like, I mean, isn't that also a commentary probably on, like, a director making a movie? Like, you come in, and you're like, here's my vision. And, like, you come in, and it's like, lighting's off, focus is off, this costume's not right, actor's hungover. And you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Why can't I just, like, have this, you know... I have a vision and then like it doesn't play out that way and it's like you know it's such a meta commentary on like what like a director would think but I mean I also can see why like audiences would be turned off because it's like it's dark she she's a dark one <laughs> yeah I mean there's a murder in this and a suicide like both granted it's like the fantasy vignettes but it's like he shoots himself in the temple Oh, yeah. And we sit with it for a second. And, like, we're all kind of supposed to laugh at it. Yeah. And, like, he even tries to, like, do the Russian roulette thing. And she's like, oh, I've probably played Russian roulette. You have two decks of cards. Like, no, that's Russian bank, which is, I don't know what the game that is. but And he's like, where are my bullets? And I'm like, I don't know where your bullets are. Let's call Tony. He knows where all your stuff is. It's like, it, it, like, it just all kind of, like, swirls around him. And then, like, when the truth finally comes out that 
she did not cheat on him. But in fact, August, his brother-in-law, who's married to his wife's sister, is the actual one having the affair. Oh, I thought it was his sister who was the one. It, It was her sister. Right. She was having... That's what I meant. She was having an affair with... sister was having an affair. With Tony, yes. With Tony! Right. And so, like, the detective that Rex Harrison's brother-in-law hired was really... Didn't see anything. Just something suggestive. And what I also love... Maybe this speaks to my own inner turmoil... But, like, the line for Rex Harrison between love and I will slit your fucking throat is razor thin. Yeah. <laughs> like, he is still planning to murder her and frame Tony up until, like, 15 minutes until the movie ends when he finds out oh, the yeah. truth. Oh, yeah. Like, he's not far away from being ready to murder her. Oh, he's an artist, Matt. Give him a break. Rex Harrison, probably best known from uh, uh, My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady. And I don't know, just in this, he just, he plays the buffoon, the absolute shithead buffoon, which I think is just comic gold to me. And I don't know, maybe we've, like, accented it enough, but, like, I think slapstick is very hard, and to make me laugh at slapstick, personally is a feat kudos to rex harrison like to make that work yeah and like you have to be a stuff shirt for a lot of the movie a believable stuff shirt to have like that much of a failure modern day remake Kelsey grammar oh yeah i mean like it's they did a remake in the 70s with dudley moore by the way i saw that with none of the music and it's like the music is so integral to this movie yeah because like Especially, I think, in in the middle one where he's, like, writing her the large check. Like, you need that, like, super just dramatic music playing to, like, sell it. Well, I just feel like, again, like, it's an example of um, they're using sound and music in the medium. Like, Mm -hmm. this movie really does a great job of showcasing, like, yes, visually it's interesting, like, with the, like, zoom in on the eyes. But also, like... It's really taking advantage of the fact that, like, uh, movies are a sound medium as well. I mean, like I said, one of the funniest parts I laughed was, like, when the sound on the vinyl slowed down. 100%. And it's like, you know, if I watch this movie on silent, there's no way I would pick up on that. And it's not dialogue. It's not a joke. It's the actual sound design of the movie that's making me laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, it's not even just for laughs. It's like... it adds to the richness of the visions that he's having yeah exactly because it plays in stark contrast to the the sound that we heard earlier like it is like a sound heavy movie yeah it's just uh yeah it's well done yeah so no this is this is one of my favorite screwball comedies and it does run dark like we've only done two screwball comedies both of them have suicide in them someplace like i think people just were looser with suicide back in the day i mean i think they were but it's also like you know we're not picking screwball comedies that don't involve suicide we're not doing 
you know, his girl Friday or Philadelphia something. Philadelphia Story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe like, we will. Which, Maybe AFI. Both great movies. Both great movies, but like, we're not choosing them on our own accord. Yeah. I don't think his girl Friday's on, on AFI. No, but Philadelphia Story is. Yeah. Wrongfully so, if you ask me. Like, <gasps> it's a good movie. It's a, it's a really good movie, but like, his girl Friday's better than that. Shots fired. Um... You just like Philadelphia Story because it's like a fashion show in the middle of it. And you're like, oh, it's like Project Runway. I Where's just, Heidi Klum? I love anything with Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart in the movie talking about Blumpkins. <laughs> He's like, hey, Catherine, you want to follow me into the Catherine bathroom? Catherine Hepburn would never give a Blumpkin. I wouldn't follow you into a bathroom if you paid me, Jimmy. You're... Catherine is probably better than your Jimmy, actually, and you do well, a very good Jimmy. Well, we'll have to do a Catherine Hepburn movie, and then I'll... Uh... We haven't done a Catherine Hepburn movie, We have haven't or... done a Catherine Hepburn movie. I'm going to give... I'm going to give Kate uh, Blanchett a run for her money. I'm going to give Kate Blanchett a run for her money, I tell ya. <laughs> well, uh, we'll have to remedy that soon. <laughs> That was either Catherine Hepburn or Jimmy Stewart. That was I'm not the, sure the weird uh, <laughs> yeah, amalgam yeah. of both of them. Well, we've reached. This is the end of a season. One hundred and eighty episodes. Fuck. That means it's time for a We're being rule breakers. I feel like this time. Yeah, I think we're supposed to do a, a director double feature, but we're not. Yeah. Because you know why? This is our podcast, damn it. We can do whatever the fuck we want. Exactly. So instead, we're doing a theme. Sound engineers. <laughs> okay, so this is why this is why this is so beautiful. This movie that you that you chose, sound design plays an important part in the movie. So therefore, it's an easy segue into a double feature of sound engineer movies. I can't think of any other movie other than two that we're doing. We're doing. Blowout, mm, BDP, and the conversation. Yeah, we are. Ooh, buddy. Both of which I th- believe were inspired by the Antonioni movie Blow Up. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll have to do some research. So correct me if I'm wrong on that. I mean, the Brian De Palma one, Hundo P. Oh, is Dilly. And yeah, I haven't seen the Brian De Palma one in many, many years. So, I'm, uh, but I, I own it. I'm ex- I, I have the Criterion Blu-ray. I'm excited to revisit it. I feel like a lot of people are talking about blow up these days. So, oh, oh blow yeah. out these days. So, uh, and yeah, conversation. Uh, I like to call it the slender goddess between uh, two titans. We're finally doing a good Francis Ford Coppola movie. Yeah, long awaited, long overdue. I'm very excited for this because you know what? Also, Matt, uh, I'll bring it up. Well, maybe I shouldn't say it now, but I'll bring it up later. Uh, the conversation is a Christmas movie. Is it really? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. So it's a perfect segue into that. 
So segue because Gene segue. Hackman plays saxophone at all your family Christmas parties. Dear. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm excited about this double feature. I think it's going to be really great. Uh, a little dour, but we'll make it fun. I promise. Yeah, it's going to be a, a heavy double feature. N- neither of these movies are particularly light or fun. I'll find a cocktail that you pour into your ear. So, Yeah, please do. I feel like we haven't had a fun beverage in a while. We haven't, and I'll work on that. I got a week, so... So yeah, something that's uh, fizzy and uh, pleasing to the ear. Excellent. Um, anyway, Matt, uh, until then, maybe we should plug our junk and get the fuck out of here. On the sordid topic of coin, please, please go to our Patreon. Please. Patreon.com slash Please. Ryan's begging you, people. He's begging you. I'm just going to say right now, We've got a ton of stuff coming up in December. We've got a very special bonus up on a movie that rhymes with Mo Merles coming up. That's going to be really good. Honestly, if you're going to sign up, December's kind of the month to do it. Like, we're flooding you with bonus content, and we're giving you a full extras-only episode. You'll be among great company. I don't want to. I'm not going to list everybody by name. And the Mo Merle's episode is going to be choice. Oh, just, just. Ah, Failing that, if if you're in a place where you can't afford to pay money for this podcast, that's okay. Uh, A great way to support us, if you still enjoy listening, is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Overcast, wherever you listen. Like, give us five stars, give us a review. Or Chartable, as we found out, you can leave reviews there. Yeah, have fun leaving them. And if if you're running a blank on what to say, Jimmy Stewart Blumpkin always works. Always good. Uh, Gloopy Gloopin the Gloopenheim is another one. 100% solid, stars with that. Solid, solid. And uh, old school listeners, you can just put uh, gaffer stick. Yeah. Also, if you just want to talk to us, x.rated.movies at gmail.com. Yeah, we're available. Or Twitter, xratedmovies. Or Facebook, Rated X Movies. Matt will get to you eventually. One day, yeah. Oh, and check out our website, xratedmovies.com. That's our ever-expanding universe. Yeah. It's our MCU. The, the EXU. Exactly. Um, great. Until next week when they do our double feature of Blowout and The Conversation. The conversation. Keep reaching for that rainbow. Rainbow.